When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Rebecca Turkington, and I am joined today by Dr. Jasmine Calver to discuss her new book, Anti-Fascism, Gender, and International Communism, the Comité Mondial des Femmes contre la Guerre et le Fascisme, 1934-1941, which has just been published by Routledge as part of its Studies in Fascism and the Far Right series. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I'm really delighted to be able to talk more about your book today because the Comité Mondial des Femmes, or for our English listeners, that is the International Committee of Women Against War and Fascism. Um, I think we'll probably refer to them as the CMF uh, from here on out, as you do in your book. They are a really fascinating organization. They're loudly anti-fascist much earlier than many other women's organizations. And as you explained so well in this book, they really bring a gender analysis to the problem of rising fascism in Italy, Germany, and Japan. Um, you also argue they're one of the first popular front organizations in Europe that combines you know, communist and socialist membership um, above party politics. And yet there's shockingly little about them in existing scholarship. Um, So this work is a really helpful primer on who the CMF were, how they functioned, and their links to other interwar social and political movements. Um, Throughout this book, you write both about sort of the organizational and the logistical program of the CMF, as well as how they framed that program for different audiences um, and, you know, how they co-opted or how they challenged different narratives about womanhood. So we'll talk about both of those tracks today. Um, But before we jump into the thematic things, how did you first come across the CMF? What drew you to this research? So um, for my master's, which I did at the same institution as I did my PhD, which the book is based on the research from that, um, I was looking at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and why a Russian branch wasn't created in the um, early period after uh, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom was created in 1915. And I was looking for sort of alternative groups that Russian women joined um, to uh, confront war and and the associated ideologies around it. And initially, I started looking at the Amsterdam Playel movement, which is a precursor to the CMF. Um, but it became clear that there was a specific women's organization that Russian women were more closely involved with, I would say, than Amsterdam Playel. Um, and that was the CMF. Um, and initially, my PhD research was going to be focused more on Amsterdam Playel, but then I came across some very helpfully digitized sources and, and the rest is history. And I've 
decided to focus on the CMF instead. So tell me a little bit more about those sources. Because there hasn't been a lot written on this group, was it hard to track down information or was it a question of these just sort of hiding in plain sight that people hadn't examined from this perspective? Absolutely. So when I was doing my master's and I was kind of looking into this new organization that I'd come across, it was not particularly clear that I would be able to access any sources if any were available. It was a a strike of fate, I think, that um, I happened to be on Twitter one day and somebody had posted a link to um, these sources that had been recently digitized as part of a partnership between the Université de Bourgogne and the Russian State Socio-Political Archives. Um, Initially, I just thought it was um, something that could potentially be useful as sort of extra sources um, on the French Communist Party. But it turns out that there was a lovely big section on uh, the CMF that I didn't know existed. Um, so obviously their um, physical holding place is in Moscow. Um, but the digitized project means that I have quite nice, easy access to it and I could keep going backwards and back to it. And there were no sort of uh, financial costs for me associated with that, which was very, very nice. And that's how I sort of pivoted towards the CMF away from Amsterdam Playel. So um, yes, I got very, very lucky that those sources existed and I could use them in conjunction with uh, physical sources in France, for example. The power of serendipity and social media, I guess. Absolutely. (laughs) So let's start at sort of the 10,000 foot look at this organization. Could you give just a general summary of the CMF? How would you describe them? What were their goals? Uh, So there is two words that I like to give people when I talk about the CMF to kind of impress how important they are. And one is that they were ambitious and the other is that they were uh, rather complex And that's because I think they were guided by ideologies from a a very broad spectrum. Um, So there was the feminist gender aspect of it, the uh, focus on emancipating women, um, specifically through things like the vote and women's right to work. Then there was uh, socialism, um, which was a little bit more of a, it was clear that they were to the left of the political spectrum, but then there was the communism, which was meant to be covert. And you, and you see in the book that quite often that wasn't the case, but it was meant to be sort of a secret that they were a communist group. Um, So that plays into it. And there's a lot of conflict between the communist side of things and the bourgeois in inverted commas, feminist side of things. Then there's the uh, pacifist anti-fascist side of things. And, to what extent um, the women's uh, pacifism was absolute when they're also militantly anti-fascist. There's that debate there. Um, And specifically the impact of fascism on women and children. Then there's the internationalist side of things. They're uh, very heavily focused on um, international campaigns. Women from almost every continent were a part of it activism crossing borders in a sort of transnational way and also quite global campaigns but they also focus a lot in the national sections on different national issues facing women and it was also quite humanitarian and philanthropist in terms of organizing campaigns to alleviate the issues created by war and fascism on women and children uh, most specifically and 
all of these things create this very ambitious and very complex organization um, that leads to some intense conflicts internally and with other women's groups of this period, but also to some really effective humanitarian organization. Um, and to kind of uh, to confront the idea of their goals. So the major one was to inform people, specifically women in this case, about the threat of fascism in Europe um, for both women in places like Germany and Italy, but also the threat of that spread more broadly across Europe. There was the promotion of uh, popular front ideals before it became adopted by the Comintern. So the idea was not only to popularise it among kind of the general population, but also among communist leaders. Um, To defend the Soviet Union was a huge one that, again, they tried to keep covert, but were not entirely successful at that. And also, again, to construct those effective effective humanitarian campaigns um, to alleviate issues faced by women in uh, times of fascism and war well complexity is definitely a good concept um (laughs) in the case of the cmf um can you talk a little bit about where they fit in the uh broader political context and sort of the timeline of anti-fascism you talked about your work on amsterdam playall movement who else was organizing against fascism in this period and what was their relationship to the cmf for the most part anti-fascist organization in this period wasn't done by specifically anti-fascist groups a lot of them were either political groups um so communism would be one example of it the most glaring example of it but even then it wasn't necessarily directly focused on fascism it could be focused on social fascism which is essentially just socialism um to boil it down to a, a very brief explanation um and the issue that you have with kind of the broader anti-war groups is that they tended to want to appear politically neutral because they felt that was more beneficial for their work, especially women's ones. And so that meant that um, anti-fascist campaigns were seen as the antithesis to that, despite it being a concern for groups like Wilf, who did try and hold a women's anti-fascist congress from I think it was around November 1933. It didn't end up working out because they were worried about the implications that this would have on their political neutrality. Amsterdam Playel was um, built from 1932 onwards. um, And it was a group that was um, a little bit uh, split in terms of their... um, their goals it was the creation Amsterdam Playel was the creation of two um congresses so it was the Amsterdam Congress Against Imperialist War so um a focus that specifically doesn't target fascism and the Playel European Workers Congress um which was more anti-fascist than the previous one it was the more popular group in general between it and the CMF it was meant to be mixed gender although in practice that wasn't necessarily the case. Women were heavily underrepresented, but it had more prominent figures in it. So um, it was led by two prominent French novelists, Henri Babus and Romain Roland. And um, it it said that it had the support of some really major um, figures in 
the world in that time, including people like Albert Einstein. So it was much more popular than the CMF, which tended to link mainly already politicized women or women already involved in activism. So the CMF in and of itself was kind of a unique organization in this period in that it was directly geared towards women and anti-fascist by name and nature, whereas other ones had just focused more on kind of the broad impact of war, for example. So speaking of the politicized women who got involved with the CMF, your first chapter is really about these four women who essentially ran the organization. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about uh, those four that you outline? What are their political backgrounds? Um, And then how did each of them first encounter this group? Absolutely. So the nice thing about all of the leadership in the CMF is they all come from uh, vastly different backgrounds uh, within sort of the same westernized society so um three of them were french and and one was british and i'll, I'll come to her last so bernadette cataneo who i broadly identify as kind of the the main leader of the group if you like she was the general secretary of the cmf but she um did most of the organizing work um she grew up in the Côte du Nord. Um, she had a very poor background and was only actually educated officially till the age of 12. Um, but this was a place where she was introduced to socialist ideas very early. Her teacher, she cited as being one of the great influences on her political um, upbringing. But she eventually moved to Paris and started work and she got involved in quite low level strike organization here. And during one of her jobs, she met her husband, John Baptiste, who she became close collaborators with and joined the Communist Party from there. Um, And she essentially became involved with the CMF because of her work with the communist trade unions, um, with the Confédération Générale du Travail Unitaire. unitaire. Um, She became what they described as the responsable femme of... um, the Communist Party in this period. And she was sort of naturally chosen by the Comintern leadership as someone who would be uh, an effective leader. Um, Then we'll talk a little bit more about another communist um, woman who was heavily involved. So that was Maria Rabaté. She was um, the leader of the French section of the CMF um, in particular, but she did work with the international group too. Um, And she was introduced to politics because of the Dreyfus affair. She was, um, her father was very politically engaged and he very vocally condemned Dreyfus's accusers. Um, And she was also really heavily influenced by her teachers as well at primary school. And she joined the PCF by 1921, very early on in its its history, and also met her husband through communist politics. Um, Octave Rabaté was um, a CGTU, again, organiser, um, he was very important as a propagandist and worked for the Comintern quite closely. They lived for a time in Moscow. They worked in Spain in the early um, in the early years preceding the Civil War. Um, she was very um, important for the Comintern. And again, she was highlighted by Comintern leaders as somebody that would be very useful to have as part of the CMF. So they were both kind of introduced to the CMF at the very beginning. They were involved with its very early um, its very early genesis. So one woman, one French woman who was really not that closely involved with communist politics at 
the beginning was uh, Gabrielle Duchenne. She never joined the Communist Party, but she is what we would describe as a fellow traveller. She um, essentially supported communism without being a Communist Party member. And this was essentially because of her bourgeois upbringing and her role in, uh, again, in inverted commas, bourgeois women um, organisations. So she too was introduced to politics through the Dreyfus Affair. They were cons- her and her husband were considered Dreyfusards. She was a little bit older than most of the other um, organisers. And so she was introduced to activism through this and from the Dreyfus Affair went into organising in terms of um, lower class uh, women's organisations, specifically for women involved in the garment trade. And she joined the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom from its inception in 1915 and became president of French Wealth, which she led until her death in the 1950s. So it was a very long time that she was involved. And obviously, because of that, she could not uh, join the Communist Party because it would affect, again, that political neutrality that these groups tried to strive for. Um, She was a key instigator in that uh, earlier Wealth Congress that I talked about the um, one that they were planning for, but it fell through. Um, and so when the Communist Party became involved, Duchenne was recruited for the process. She'd probably worked closely with Cataneo in the past as they were both um, working with working class women in the Paris region. And she became president of the organisation. Um, and so she acted as a sort of figurehead, a, a, a figure for whom, a figure that women in Paris knew and women in France and more broadly knew and would be more likely to join because of. Um, but she sort of didn't do the the bulk of the work day to day. And then finally, we talk about the British uh, leader of the CMF, Charlotte Haldane. She wasn't the British leader from the beginning, um, but she was also impacted by the Dreyfus Affair. So there's a real common theme running through there um, because she was a woman of Jewish heritage. Her father was a German Jew. Um, she was very politically motivated throughout her youth, but she wasn't involved with the Communist Party until the 1920s when she met her husband, who was a biologist, a really um, important biologist called JBS Haldane. They were both covert communists by the 1930s, although they hadn't joined the Communist Party by the time she had joined with the CMF. Um, she became the editor of Woman Today, and eventually she became the leader of the um, British section and then the revamped CMF in 1939 when it moved its headquarters from Paris to London in the wake of uh, several scandals involving the Soviet Union. So as you um, describe them and also in the book you do this as well, having these different backgrounds really extends the reach of the CMF um, in a lot of interesting ways. Um, like you say, there's different classes, there's different party affiliations, there's different reputations um, and I think that's part of the reason the CMF probably um, is able to reach into so many different audiences and geographically as well. So let's talk a little bit more about that and how that manifests in the Congresses that they host. Um, So as you write about uh, in chapter two, they have two major Congresses um, that really bring uh, members together. And they had another one planned for Cuba, right? In Mm -hmm. 1939, which is really interesting, unfortunately did not happen because of the war. but tell me more about what their intentions were with these events. Um, what did the idea of a Congress offer as an organizing strategy? Um, and then we can talk a little bit more about you know, who, who actually went to those. Absolutely. So the Congresses offered a chance for these women to meet, to, to discuss um, 
CMF business in person. Most of the time it was done um, through correspondence and letter writing. Occasionally a, a CMF activist from France, for example, would visit Belgium to help their section uh, develop. But by and large, everything was done through um, correspondence. So this gave them an opportunity to discuss things in person, to discuss the way that the international group was pivoting, things that smaller national sections could do to grow, to discuss things like their journals. It was also a really useful tool for attracting new members to these um, congresses, especially the 1934 one, really attracted a wide variety of women and gave this image of a really international diverse group which was exactly what they were trying to foster it also allowed them to demonstrate support for a number of causes women's rights um anti-fascism also for the soviet union which was shown quite a lot in congress decorations and things like that um and to establish their understanding of fascism at that time it does change throughout their really short lifespan um from being something that might happen maybe we should confront it to it becoming more concrete to eventually this is a real threat now to other countries it's quite firmly entrenched in places like germany and italy and japan um but it's a real concern for the 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 spread and it also as i say it allowed them to demonstrate its internationalism which was a key part of these congresses so national dress um, and nas- different uh, languages were encouraged. There were constant displays of fraternity and support, and the idea of sisterhood was really um, was really pushed at these congresses as a way to link women from diverse backgrounds together. Can you break down a little bit more what those backgrounds were? Like who who was attending these conferences, and what does it tell you about the reach and the spread of the CMF? Absolutely. So the two major international congresses in 1934 and 1938 were held in France. The 1938 Congress was meant to be held, I believe, in Czechoslovakia, but obviously by that point, um, international events had made that a little bit more difficult to arrange um, and to ensure the safety of the attendees. So they decided to hide it uh, to hold it in Marseille instead. Um, so the national composition of these congresses which we only know for certain in the 1934 case, were likely incredibly French. The 1934 Congress was incredibly French. But there were representatives from um, all across Europe, Western Europe, Scandinavia, Central Europe, occasionally from um, Eastern Europe too, primarily the Soviet Union, but occasionally other places too. There were delegates and representatives from the Americas, the United States sent people. So did places like Uruguay, for example, quite a, or a couple of South American women did attend or supported the Congress. Um, there were women who attended from Asia as well. Chinese women were often highlighted as, as attending as very important, um, especially with the outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War with the invasion of Manchuria before the CMF was created and also from a far afield as Australia although obviously these <laughs> the number of these delegates were incredibly small um because of the monetary commitment that was involved with traveling to France the there were also a real there was also a real diversity in terms of um the uh, social background of 
of attendees. There were women from a variety of working backgrounds. So there were some, um, I think they described it as worker delegates. They were the highest um, attended group for both French and non-French delegates. So they've made up the most proportion. There were um, there were peasants, um, rural workers, I think is what it means here. Um, women from the civil service, women who were in liberal careers, women who weren't employed at all. There were a real wide variety of women who attended. And um, it wasn't just women from bourgeois backgrounds. Most of the women who had traveled from uh, further afield from other continents were bourgeois women who had their own kind of funding. But there were women from the working classes who attended who were mainly French in these cases. And what about the political character of these congresses? You talk about um, the CMF as sort of an early popular front organization. What's the political association of attendees? And also, what's the character of the Congress itself? So numerically, um, the communists definitely dominated delegates, um, both French and non-French, which was how they were um, they were reported in Congress reports. Um but there were a significant number of pacifists involved um, who would largely have probably been bourgeois women. There was also a significant number of socialists and this did increase with later Congresses as well. Um, But it was very clear that communist influence permeated proceedings and it was something that um, both representatives who attended really highlighted in their reports to the executive committee. There was... There were red flags flown everywhere. The workers salute. The raised fist was given constantly as a response to speeches and, and things like that. The international was sang for the arrival of delegates, again, as a response to speeches. Again, just about at any time that they felt any sort of um, solidarity. Um, there was also a key Congress slogan for 1934, which was to support the peace policy of the USSR, country of the emancipated woman. So they were meant to be a covert organisation, but in reality, communist um, influence really did dominate the proceedings um, of CMF Congresses. Let's talk a little bit more about that. And that's sort of what your next chapter is about, the CMF as a communist front organization, but also one that has a considerable amount of freedom and flexibility. So you look at two aspects of the sort of relationship between CMF leadership and the Soviet Union, one of which is correspondence, um, and the other is political tourism, which I think is really interesting as well. So let's start with the, the letters between CMF leadership. How does that reveal their relationship essentially with the Communist Party? Absolutely. So Many of the responses from the Soviet side of things aren't recorded. However, from the correspondence from the French CMF leadership, which who were the main people who were talking to Soviet women, um, it was quite relaxed. It wasn't um, responding to directives and things like that. Everything was framed as um, requests for advice. How would you go about doing this? Can we have um, material on women in the Soviet Union for use in our publications to distribute to other national sections? But it was also um, really friendly correspondence. It was clear that the 
leaders of the CMF and the um, representatives of Soviet women in the Comintern were really quite close and had spent considerable time together over the years. Um, and the key women here on the Soviet side of things are Elena Stasova and Maria Krilova, who were both um, really deeply involved with Comintern work. There were stories of, um, or there were discussions about how uh, Soviet women had treat, um the the children of CMF leadership who had been sent to Moscow to kind of develop their communist education. Um, it was it's a really interesting way of of discussing CMF business. It's always really really friendly and advice based, which was not what I was expecting when I came across this correspondence. I was expecting it to be more kind of direct. Um, orders from the Comintern on what to do. But it appears that the CMF really did have a lot of freedom um, when talking with the Soviet representatives and in their work. And that sort of affective side of these relationships also plays out in sort of the idea of political tourism. Can you talk more about the how that functioned? What are the logistics of it? And what did the CMF get out of this type of tourism to the Soviet Union? Absolutely. So they... Uh, these visits tended to be primarily propagandistic for both sides, for the CMF and for the Comintern. So for the CMF, these visits were very were very useful for um, demonstrating their international connections, um, for showing to both its membership and those who might be interested in joining the CMF that they were really closely connected to important people. And also it was a really useful uh, propaganda exercise in terms of conversion. Um, it may not entirely convert somebody from a socialist or a non-party woman to a communist woman, but it often put really positive images of the Soviet Union in these women's heads and they were more likely to be sympathetic towards the Soviet Union. From the Soviet side of things, from the Comintern side of things, that was also a, a key outcome of these trips was propaganda conversion, the opportunity to get involved with women who may have been socialist and have inroads with the Socialist Party um, and use them after these trips as, um, I suppose, spies may not be the correct word, but as um, women who could report back on on socialist feeling and business. Um, they really identified women who were primed for conversion. The Soviet guides kept reports on each woman and their susceptibility to Soviet propaganda. Um, so for both sides, they were really useful for propaganda, praising the Soviet Union and increasing susceptibility to communism. These trips generally kind of um, logistically were huge. Um, it wasn't as though they just kind of stayed in Moscow and saw the the model um, institutions in Moscow. They travelled across uh, a few Soviet countries. For example, Azerbaijan was a huge one. They spent a lot of time in Baku, um, the Caucasus region, the uh, Georgia, Ukraine. Sometimes they were they went across uh, the Western Soviet Union and did a lot of different things. They went to um, parks, sanatoriums, education centres, factories, refineries. They, they went to just about everywhere they could. Obviously, they were all model institutions. It wasn't as though they saw the real Soviet Union, um, but that was part of the propaganda side of these visits. 
So let's continue talking about the the international links, because the next section of your book looks at sort of four of the main international campaigns that the CMF ran. So that's the Spanish Civil War, the the rise of Nazism in Germany, the Second Sino-Japanese War, and the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. So lots of global reach. Um, But as you write, each one of those campaigns has a very different character. Um, So let's just go through them one by one, starting with Spain. Um, What were the CMF's sort of main lines of effort in their campaign around the Spanish Civil War? And then to um, link back to this theme that you weave throughout the book in terms of how they actually portray femininity, how are they imagining women's roles in that war? So this, I think, is my personal favorite part of the book. These these campaigns were all on different topics and were approached in very different ways. So in Spain, um, the main line of campaigning was through consciousness raising through the promotion of news from Spain and specifically news about the impact of the war on Spanish women and children and focusing specifically on the fascist atrocities towards Spanish and women women and children they didn't necessarily talk about um the atrocities occurring from the other side it was very anti-fascist um And they also did a lot of fundraising. They were consistently organising food drives, material and and moral aid drives, um, and specifically fundraising as well. Um, And that was um, an effort that continued from the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War in 1936 um, up until the outbreak of the Second World War, even beyond kind of the traditionally held end of the Spanish Civil War. the portrayal of women in each of these international campaigns, I think, is probably one of the most interesting because despite being a communist front organization that um, often advocated for women's emancipation in various areas, when it came to discussing their international campaigns, especially in their presses, they often reverted to focusing on women's role as mother and how that was so important and it must be protected um, and how um, women as mothers are mujeres um, as in the case of the Spanish Civil War they were uh, passive victims of war they were impacted by war the most they not only saw their, their husbands and sons and brothers killed but they also had to deal with kind of the the emotional weight of war as well but on the flip side in the spanish civil war case they also put a heavy focus on milicianas so women who were this more masculinized image of a woman fighter who were directly at the front lines fighting alongside men and it was actually framed when women were recalled from the front lines when they were banned from fighting in the spanish civil war that it was the impact of viewing women dying on the front line that's how the cmf um framed it it was the impact of seeing women dying on the front line on men um that necessitated them being called back um although this was not really the reason it was sort of um the concern of having a inverted in inverted commas stronger front line especially for the the communist side of things 
yeah, that that ambiguity about women and conflict is something that comes up over and over again. Yes. <laughs> um, and especially in, in your work as well. Let's um, move on to sort of the other big fascist threat in Europe, which is Nazism in Germany. Um, what does the CMF campaign around that look like? So comparatively, I think because um, in terms of shocking events that kind of um, are reported on regularly, um, the the consensus about what was happening in Nazi Germany seemed to be a lot more gradual. And as a result, it wasn't um, seen as being this immediate threat until it was, if that makes sense. Um, And so initially it was kind of a very slow burn of a campaign. It wasn't fundraising, for example. It wasn't um, the raising of material aid or food aid or clothing. It was more about um, dealing with... um, the impact of fascism in Germany on specific women. So there were a lot of cases of um, women imprisoned in Nazi Germany for um, political activism that wasn't um, sanctioned by the Nazi authorities. So, for example, a lot of communist women were arrested. And one of their biggest campaigns was on um, Lisa Lott Herman, who was a communist woman who was imprisoned for working covertly as a communist Um and she was sentenced to death. And it was this idea of writing to impo- to important Nazi officials, but also to the wives of Nazi officials begging kind of for her life and, and saying, you can't, um, you can't execute her because she's a mother. She's a, she's um, a woman. And she was the first woman who had been sentenced to death for this. And eventually she was executed. So the success of this campaign was negligible. However, it did get, um, the rank and file of the CMF involved with directly engaging with Nazi authorities, which is something unique among their campaigns. Um, But as you kind of move along in the CMF's lifetime, it becomes more of a concern about the spread of um, Nazism or fascism across Europe and the concern um, about the implementation of Um, and this is a quote, reactionary and degrading ideas on the family, education, people and race in German women and the idea that this might spread across Europe and all the the gains that women had made since the end of the First First World War might be completely destroyed as a result. Well, let's talk more about what that campaign looks like when it's happening outside of Europe. Um, I thought one of the really interesting chapters in your book is about sort of what what anti-fascism looks like in a non-European context, specifically Ethiopia and China. Um, What does the CMF campaign in Ethiopia say about the organization's approach to race? Um, And is there a different character to the type of work that they're doing? Yeah, so these um, two campaigns, this chapter on kind of the more global, less European campaigns, um, were were the two that I really focused on um, post-PhD because I I wanted to kind of look more at how race was a factor in in CMF campaigns. From the very beginning, the idea of self-determination and decolonization were involved in CMF uh, congresses, in their manifestos, in their work plans. Um, But it actually turned out to be quite contradictory. The CMF's approach to these uh, international events happening outside of Europe could be quite contradictory. Um, So there was a real focus on um, self-determination for the Ethiopian people, the idea of um, Ethiopian civilization, Ethiopia being one of the more 
civilized in inverted commas um, nations in Africa at this time. That was a, a major idea among kind of um, international politi- politicians and politics. Um, so there was a real focus on Ethiopian civilization as a reason that it should be left alone and, and not invaded by um, Italy. But there was also, or there were also real, there was real infantilizing language utilized across CMF campaigns. Um, I don't think it was necessarily that they intended to infantilize Ethiopian populations. I think it was probably the case um, that these outdated understandings of what it meant to be Ethiopian, African, or Africanness in general was intended to appeal to white Europeans and their general understanding of Africa um, to support fundraising efforts. And one of the most interesting um, parts of the language deployed, I think, in the Ethiopian campaign was um, that war trauma and the idea of how war has impacted generations um, of women was deployed, but it was deployed regarding Italian women's experiences rather than Ethiopian women's experiences. So it was about how the um, earlier war with Ethiopia that Italy had when it had tried to invade in the late 19th century, how the impact of that, the death of people around women at that time was passed down from that generation to the generation who had went through the First World War to the generation who were going through this second invasion of Ethiopia. And it was really interesting to me that it was kind of more of the focus, more of um, the trauma of Italian women who were sort of geographically removed from the fighting in Ethiopia versus the women who were there experiencing the conflict firsthand, um, which I thought I thought was really interesting and kind of uh, contradictory to how they had framed, them, framed themselves in, in their congresses and in their mm-hmm. uh, official documents. Absolutely. And what about um, in the Asian context, in the Sino-Japanese War? I'm also really interested in this idea of the warphan, the war orphan campaign. That seems like a really unique um, instance. So could you talk more about what the CMF was doing in China um, and specifically how that campaign functioned? I think the this Second Sino-Japanese War campaign was probably up there with the Spanish Civil War campaign as the CMF's most kind of fleshed out, most complete um, and one of the most, one of the ones that the CMF focused on the most in, in its activism. So there were, they sent um, CMF activists over there. Charlotte Holden, who I spoke about earlier, was was one such woman who spent a long time in China um, reporting for the CMF and for um, others, for the British government as well, um, about what was happening in China, the situation on the ground, uh, what was happening for children in, in particular. There were a vast number of in, of issues in China at this period that meant that there was a huge orphaned population. So it wasn't just the war, there was um, the flooding, uh, there was flooding across China, um, some as a result of kind of war sabotage and, and some just as natural events that essentially meant that there was a large population of children who didn't have parents or guardians anymore or, or children who still had fathers but the fathers had gone off to war so there was a real diverse group of children who had been left orphaned and as a result there was um 
a need to um, house these children and to look after them. And so the CMF, um, as a result of Charlotte Holden's um, witnessing these children's homes um, and how they operated, set up a fundraising campaign which um, really represented, uh, really reflected the um, the move towards um, child sponsorship as an effective humanitarian campaign in the interwar period. You see the growth of groups like Save the Children, Plan International, those types of groups, and and the CMF followed this same line for children in China. Um, They um, asked people to send in um, small amounts of money and they would be allocated a child who would be their, um, their adopted child. And it was a really, really interesting campaign that probably was the most individual successful campaign in this period. It raised a vast amount of money um, for the Chinese um, war relief effort. And it, um, I think it had even, within about a month or two, had um, already over-fundraised, had already beaten the fundraising for the CMF Spanish campaign. So it was really, really successful. And it was designed to kind of ensure that these children were well looked after in these children's homes, which was a, a major um, Chinese based campaign as well it was a, it was something that the chinese were really focused on but the cmf kind of transported that and and the focus on children to women in in europe specifically in britain and france in particular um so so it was a really interesting campaign that was very different from anything else they did and that it focused entirely on children and and women weren't really involved in that in terms of being the recipients of aid mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a lot about the international reach of the CMF. Let's briefly talk about the national issues, because as you mentioned at the beginning, the bulk of their membership is actually British and French. So what are they? What are the issues that they are focused on within those two countries? Um, are there local political problems that they see as being part of their purview? Absolutely. So um, to take France, um, because it was... It, France was experiencing something different from um, other European countries in this period in that it hadn't given women the right to vote and wouldn't for um, another 10 or so years at the foundation of the CMF. Um, So the French section were really focused on um, gaining the right to vote for women. Um, They were consistently organising protests. They were um, publishing pamphlets. um, They were writing in CMF journals about the different attempts by the French Senate um, and and Assembly to um, introduce different legislation that would technically enfranchise women, but not really, um, and how this couldn't be allowed to happen um, and to keep advocating for the right to vote. But outside of France, it doesn't seem that the other CMF sections really kind of highlighted this um, difference between French women and, and those elsewhere in Europe who had the right to vote. It was very much something that the French section focused on and others kind of ignored was happening. Um, but something that both uh, both the French and British section, who are kind of the, the two that I focus on primarily, um, something that they do both have issues with is attacks on women's right to work. And this kind of comes from broader concerns about the spread of fascism and how fascism attacks women's rights to work 
both the French and British sections identified um, trends happening within their own governments towards uh, restriction, restrictions on women's right to work or, or women's rights to be uh, economically independent. And so, again, there were several um, protests and things like that that the French section were involved in. They were constantly working along alongside Amsterdam Playel in, in demonstrations um, to tackle this kind of these attacks on women's right to work and similarly in in england that was also the case they both um uh promoted strike movements the french cmf um had an entire special edition based on these huge strikes that happened in 1936 in france where um a a huge proportion of the working population went on strike it was something that they used to promote uh, communist trade unions and memberships of those. Um, but also you can see the popular front creeping in here too because it, it becomes not just the CGTU but also the socialist trade unions are being promoted. Um, so that's very important. And then, of course, there were reproductive rights, um, things like abortion and things like that that I talk about a bit more in, in the next chapter too. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, they're aligning with a lot of other local feminist concerns, but bringing yes. this sort of anti-fascist analysis to it, that, that seems different. Yes. Um, let's talk about, you've spoken about this in answering these other questions, but let's talk specifically about how the CMF engages these different models of womanhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do that through looking at their uh publications and journals. So could you talk a little bit more about sort of the politics of motherhood, the politics of makeup, the politics of women's health? Like what what did their publications look like and how do you draw out these themes about femininity from them? So that's another part of the CMF that is incredibly complex and contradictory. Um, the journals, while technically being political um, literature, actually tend to lean towards kind of the traditional, um, the maternalist, the um, stereotypical idea of what women would be interested in. Um, And a lot of that is to do with the fact that um, disposable income for their target um, audience, so working class women, wouldn't be that great and likely wouldn't stretch to kind of two separate journals or newspapers. Um, So it would be unlikely that they would um, spend the money on a political um, magazine when they also want to read like lifestyle magazines. So the CMF try to incorporate both into one. And this is something that comes up when talking about makeup, cosmetics, um, skincare specifically, because um, in one case, in the British journal Woman Today, a, a socialist communist activist called John Beauchamp writes about how um, women who are serious political activists shouldn't be wasting their time wearing makeup. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference to their political activism, shouldn't be doing it. And uh, very interestingly, and for probably one of the only times in the Woman Today history, the next month they have um, a a sort of letters to the editor page about this specific article and it was very very controversial it seems there were people who supported her and said absolutely women as political activists shouldn't care about this Um, but then there were some who said well no actually political activism might be um more effective if women are looking 
pleasant <laughs> don't look like they've just been in the factory all day and and are half dead maybe it'll be more effective if they're talking to other people and look pleasant and put together and well cared for um it's it's odd because um in terms of how cosmetics and things like that are, are portrayed there is very little in terms of specific politics that come into it although there is again in the in woman today there is a discussion about um how wearing makeup is anti-fascist because um the emancipatory soviet union encourages it and um and and really says that you should use it because it's an example of science and um the development of our understanding of cosmetics is because of scientific discovery and women in Nazi Germany are not encouraged to wear it because it's fascist. Um, they're, they're traditionalists. They don't want to, they don't care about scientific um, exploration and technological development. So this is really the only time that it's mentioned. And it's such an odd thing because I would think um, in a journal that has a specific page for women's health and beauty as both Woman Today and Femme d'Action Mondiale, the French um, journal, have. They both have specific pages dedicated to these topics that it doesn't come up more often, that there isn't more of a focus on on how um, makeup is politics. I think that our lipstick is politics is the name of the article that I'm talking about. So it's interesting how that isn't developed more um, but generally, it's kind of it's very traditional. Um, these these uh, traditional, traditionally feminine uh, pastimes are presented in a very traditional way. Um, motherhood is elevated above everything else as the most important thing. Women's healthcare often comes second to childcare. Child healthcare in the the pages on healthcare in these these journals. So it, it's really interesting how much maternalism and maternalist language comes into CMF journals, which are ostensibly meant to be political documents. They actually become much more of a lifestyle document by a certain point, especially in the British case. It sounds like a, a great reflection of that sort of messiness and complexity that you were talking about earlier. Um, so tell us what happens to the CMF. You know, they they're planning this Congress in Cuba. It's 1939. We all know what happens then. You know, where do they go from here? How do they end? What happens to their leadership? Absolutely. So something I didn't touch upon earlier on really was that that 1939 Congress in Cuba, which was meant to be even more of a demonstration of the internationalness of the group. The um the idea that it wasn't just European centered, although in practice it very much was. It is this kind of this image building exercise that it does but because um of the outbreak of war in 1939 it becomes very clear that they can't hold a congress in cuba it would be now impossible to get from europe to america in enough of um in in as many numbers as it would need to be to make any kind of an impact and make it worthwhile um earlier in 1939 the cmf became the world committee for peace and democracy because it it sort of wanted to get away from the um, the image of the Soviet Union that had become more of the case since the 1930s, specifically the purges. Um, but also this was very useful for the CMF um, or the World Committee for Peace and Democracy after the Nazi-Soviet Pact II. Um, it was an, an attempt to kind of get away from the obvious communist links, although they were still there. Um, but the Nazi-Soviet Pact, I think, really did have the biggest impact on the CMF as a group. Um 
the general secretary, Kataneo, the, the woman who really led this organization, quit communist politics altogether. She couldn't understand how communism and Nazism could work together at all when they're um, sort of diametrically opposed in many ways. And she had spent the past uh, five years working in an anti-fascist capacity, how she was supposed to just accept that fascism was the new ally. It didn't make sense to her. And she thought it was very hypocritical of the Soviets. And so she essentially quit communist politics as a result didn't have anything to do with politics um, during or after the Second World War, although she did um, work with organisations during the Vichy regime to help Jewish children to ensure their safety. So she was uh, involved in sort of the humanitarian side of things for a little bit, but after the war, she just completely lived out of days um, quite happily with her family, didn't get involved with communist politics. But on the other hand, Maria Rabate, she became heavily involved in communist politics. She already was a member of the Communist Party, but she used that those communist links to become involved in the resistance. Um, Octave, her husband, was sent to a concentration camp and that kind of galvanised her even further. She left her children with her, her parents and um, became heavily involved with the resistance. And eventually, after the war, she became a deputy to the National Assembly as a communist. She sat for the same region. She sat on committees for uh, the family, education, population, uh, public health, reconstruction and war damage. So she was really heavily involved and she sat in her seat in the Senate for a good 15 or 20 years. Um, for Duchenne, uh, she, as a fellow traveller, actively remained in support of the Soviet Union, which is, is quite odd when you think about it, because again, she should be really focused on the pacifist and anti-fascist side of things more so than the communist side of things. Um, but she remained um, as a stalwart defender of the Soviet Union, I think, at least uh, up to her death. I'm pretty sure she, she remained a stalwart um, supporter of the Soviet Union, at least until the years leading up to her death. Um, she had to escape from Paris with the invasion of Germany um, because it was assumed that she would be wanted by the Gestapo as somebody who was heavily involved in, in anti-fascist activism. Um, she survived the war, um, came back to Paris. Uh, she remained president of Wilf until her death. Um, and again, she was constantly involved with praising the Soviet Union um, and um their achievements in inverted commas um, throughout her life and then for Holden she essentially she also broke from the communist party but a little bit later than Cataneo so she was still a communist into the second world war um, and eventually she traveled to the Soviet Union to report on what was happening on the eastern front um, and for the people of the Soviet Union but she realized when she was there how uninformed the Soviet people were about what will ha what was happening on the Western Front. They didn't know anything about the Blitz, for example. Um, she'd witnessed extreme poverty and um, the overworking of Soviet peasants um, for the war efforts. And, and she essentially, she came back and said, um, I, I can't in good conscience support the Communist Party anymore, which resulted in her break from the, the British Communist Party, but also her um, she broke up with her husband as well. She, she split from her husband, divorced him because he uh, still resolutely believed in the Soviet Union. Um, and by 1949, she'd published an anti-Soviet memoir, um, which demonstrates kind of a lot of bitterness towards the Soviet Union uh, not long afterwards. And again, kind of 
beyond that was involved more heavily in publishing translations and things like that wasn't so involved with the politics side of things anymore so they, they all kind of went in very diverse directions none of them ended up in the same place um except from probably Duchenne who kept a firm grip on the French section of Wilf um something which was I'm sure the bane of many French pacifist activists lives for a, a time so I think you make a really good case in this book that despite a very short lifespan, I mean, we're really only looking at about five years of activism, that the CMF is a pretty unique um, organization. I'm interested to hear you, you talk about sort of why you think this matters for scholarship. You know, why should we know more about the CMF? And especially in the particular historical moment we're in now with this rise of populist and even proto-fascist movements um, and politicians, what is it about the CMF that's important for audiences? What do you want your readers to get from this book? For me, the CMF is a, an incredibly important and unique group because um, not only is it sort of a precursor of the Popular Front, which I would argue directly led or, or, or directly helped with the implementation of the Popular Front strategy by the Comintern, um, but it's also an example of a relatively successful women's communist front organization in a period where that was a rarity and before some of the most important women's groups of the 20th century post-world war ii groups like the women's international democratic federation which can can and has by historians been directly linked with the cmf um it had a, a real kind of freedom, which a lot of communist front groups didn't get to have. So it had some support from uh, communist parties, financial and, and moral, but also had um, the ability to kind of expand beyond traditional communist group remits. Um, it was uh, ambitious and wide reaching in that it, it considered things rather globally, which was in many cases unusual for women's groups in this period beyond the sort of large international groups like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Um, and it focused on specifically political topics like fascism and anti-fascism that those women's groups that I just mentioned didn't necessarily. And because of the freedom from the common turn that it had, it was able to work closely with key women's organisations, which probably made it one of the very few communist front organizations that worked very closely with non-communist international organizations in this period and because it has been going back to one of the first questions because it has been neglected because of this presumed lack of sources up until recently um i think that the possibilities for research into this group its work um on national and international scales i think the possibilities for that are endless i think there's so much you can do if you are interested in the French side of things, the British side of things, Belgian. Um, I know um, of some historians currently working on uh, the Yugoslav group, for example, which is something that I can't do because of language language difficulties. But I do think that um, the opportunities for further research into this group are boundless. Um, and I think that now is the perfect time for that research because of... Um, these growing populist movements, the attacks on um, women's liberty and freedoms um, and rights that have been enshrined for so long. Um, 
like the recent um, repeal of Roe v. Wade and the criminalization of abortions in some US states, I think now is the perfect time to be talking about groups like this and how they organized um, the successes that they had, the failures that they had, um, the the successes that they had in terms of bringing women from a diverse uh, back from diverse backgrounds together are incredibly important for confronting the threat that um, women face in several areas at this point. And because the CMF worked on such a diverse set of topics, they're the perfect group to kind of look at and, and say what worked in this period and why and, and what kind of strategies could we um, adopt or develop um, from this group that could be useful in the future in confronting these these threats from uh, populist and proto-fascist groups. So I, I think it's an organisation that can teach us a lot in the present day um, with current political trends for certain. Well, that is a fantastic call to action, both for researchers <laughs> and for activists. And I think a great way to wrap up this interview. Um, I'll just ask you one more question, which is what what are you working on now? Um, are you taking this research further post-PhD? So I am currently working on another article on the CMF um, about the uh, relationship between the French national section and um, uh, women activists in places like Algeria. It was meant to be kind of a more broad look at the French colonies, but I think in terms of source availability, it will generally kind of focus on Algeria. Um, So that's one aspect of research that I'm doing and might well be my last um, CMF-focused piece of scholarship, at least for a while. Um, it would be something that I would love to do to look into the French section and its work um, on a more sort of micro scale than I, I did in this book. Um, but that's something that I'm going to, going to put away for a little bit, give myself a break. Um, but I am kind of looking into doing uh, some more about uh, women and French communism. So that's a, a side of things that I'm looking into for my next project, I think. Excellent. Well, I'll look forward to that. And like you say, there's lots of room for other researchers to pick up some slack here. So hope that we'll see more on the CMF in the coming years. Um, Jasmine, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed myself. (laughs) Thank you for your questions. Uh, Well, I'm Rebecca Turkington. You've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. And we've been discussing Jasmine Calver's new book, Anti-Fascism, Gender and International Communism, the Comité Mondial des Femmes contre la Guerre et le Fascisme, 1934 to 1941. And that is a brand new 2022 release from Routledge. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.